0: Good morning, church. Um, good morning. Thank you. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Stephen Obert or Stevo. I'm the youth director here at Disciples Church. Uh, really, is my joy to be here with you guys this morning. Um, uh, it was planned for me to preach today, not like last Sunday. <laughs> supposed to preach the Sunday before last, not last, but I am supposed to be here this morning. So, um, uh, all right. I told you. Oh. I'm kind of like jumping around a little bit. Um, I told you last week that during this Advent series, we wanted to focus on the people who were uh, surrounding Jesus at his birth. Um, Last week, we spoke about Joseph, and this week, we're going to turn our focus to the Magi. Now, if you're like me, you grew up hearing this word pronounced Magi, but the correct pronunciation of this word is Magi or Magi. Now, don't worry, I plan on bringing way more mind-blowing content than that. This is just the warm-up, just to get you guys started. Um, (laughs) I would ask that when we're done, if I've ruined your favorite nativity set, or even brought some confusion to the title of our sermon series, please don't shoot the messenger. Uh, Just because we have some silly traditions doesn't mean that we should shy away from biblical truth even if we have to reconstruct our favorite Christmas decorations, right? So grab your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to spend the majority of our time in this whole chapter. Uh, Of course, I'll jump to other passages, and they'll be up here on the screen. Uh, They might be in your sermon notes as well. Let's open in prayer. Father, you have blessed us beyond what we can even comprehend as we spend these next few weeks looking at the people involved surrounding the birth of Jesus, help us not to relegate this story to our Christmas celebrations or our one-time-a-year consideration of what it means, but help us rather to see these events unfold according to your sovereign plan. Let them stir up in us a worship of you and your Son Jesus that we carry throughout 2018. Let the truth of what happened at Jesus' birth and the people involved bring us to new growth in our own lives and a new joy that we are serving and living for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Guide our time this morning and as always we pray that this would be a blessing to you and beneficial for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, To make sure that there's no confusion, I do want to give you a bit of an outline on where we're going this morning uh, within our text, but for you type A's who really enjoy my three points, we're not doing that this morning, so I apologize in advance. (laughs) Um, To be clear, our Christmas decor is not the focus of our morning, but what I want us to see is the beauty of God's sovereignty. As we walk through the passage, I want us to see step-by-step step how God brought these events to pass, and I want us to see the joy in which the Magi relentlessly pursue the King of the Jews. So let's dive into the passage and see what God has in store for us today. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So, to help us see with fresh eyes what's going on here, I need to begin by deconstructing some of our Christmas traditions. So, hold on to your seats as I share our first truth. How many wise men or magi were there? In all of our nativity scenes and most of our Christmas stories, we are told that it's three wise men. Are they wise men or kings? We sing Christmas songs, we three kings of Orient are. The problem with that is that none of this is in our text. In fact, historically, the Magi would have traveled as a larger group of men. Although these men were very wise, they also weren't likely to be kings. When these men traveled, they would have traveled with a small group of soldiers, something like a personal army. Kings and rulers would call on these men to ask for their wisdom in managing and running their countries or their kingdoms. And the magi were among the wisest of the wise. They would have had knowledge of astronomy, among many other things. The uniqueness of the time would allow them to be experts in almost all areas That's a a different comparison to today because of the vast amount of knowledge we have. Our experts are experts in very specific areas. We don't have people that can be experts in all areas of life. There's too much information. Now, these men were likely from Persia, which we'll see later, was a part of the Babylonian Empire. The Magi would have been very wealthy. They would have wanted for nothing. And this is why they were not only able to travel as far as they did, and with likely a large group, but they were also to give such great offerings to Jesus when they do ultimately arrive and worship him. Now, I have a theory, and this is not a biblical point or something I've researched, it's just my own thoughts. We traditionally made it three wise men because there's three different gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We put them at the manger because it was easier than setting up two different scenes on our decorations. And three wise men works better than like 50 soldiers surrounding a baby, right? A little bit easier to put on the mantle. Um, I do want to be very clear before we dive in deeper, though. There are a lot of things that we simply can't be 100% certain of because the scriptures don't give us those details. I want to talk about the most likely circumstances, given all the history and biblical evidence that we have, But unless a detail is found specifically in the Word of God, it could be different. There could have been three wise men. It just probably wasn't likely. I wanted to give this warning because it can be a really dangerous thing to tell people this is what God says when it's really something you've learned or researched and it's not expressly stated in the Word of God. So looking back to our passage, notice that verse 1 doesn't say they went straight to Herod to ask about the king who was born, but rather they went to Jerusalem and they were inquiring about the event. What had most likely happened was that his star, the one that had led them to Jerusalem, had stopped being visible. So they went to the capital of the area and they asked those who should have known about this event, where's the king that was born? I think this is a safe assumption because we will see later that his star reappears and the magi rejoice. So, think about all that's going on in this little passage. These men who were extremely wise are entering the capital of the Jewish community where they had followed his star to see and worship the king of the Jews. They're asking the very people who should have been looking for and waiting with great anticipation for the arrival of this king because it was prophesied he was the prophesied king and Messiah that the Israelites would have been taught about. You see, these foreign men had such confidence in the fact that his star had risen, they not only followed the star to where they were now, but they asked where he was born, not if he was born. They were confident he was indeed born. They knew it so deeply that they pursued his star, traveling almost a year to get to this land where the king was supposed to be. Can you imagine their disappointment? The Magi arrive, and the very people who should be looking forward to this king seem to have no clue about this event at all. In fact, the Magi had asked around long enough, a long enough period of time that they drew enough attention, and Herod caught wind of them being there, and it disturbed him greatly. Let's continue with our verse, verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So the Magi are in Jerusalem and they're asking people, where is the king? And Herod, who had purchased his kingship, hears about this rival to his throne, a rival so great that even as a child, the Magi were here to worship him and were calling him a king. You see, typically a son born to the king may be in line for the throne, but they were not called a king from birth. However, the Magi had said this child was born. King of the Jews. Now it'll help to give a little background on who Herod is as well. Herod was not of Jewish descent. And in fact, as history would show us, he bought his throne and he became king over the Jews for no other reason than money, power, and status. In fact, Herod was such a wicked man that he killed two of his sons and his wife. One of his other sons tried to poison him. To say the least, he was not a much-loved king. In fact, he had an edict that when he died, all the people who had worked with him, served for him, were to be put to death as well in order to ensure that the land would mourn his passing. He knew that if it were just his death, no one would have mourned. In fact, there would have likely been celebration. Now, Thankfully, also according to history, this didn't actually happen when Herod died. No one honored his request. He was not a much-loved king. As another clarity, this Herod was not the one who killed John the Baptist. That was actually one of Herod's sons who had survived being born to such a wicked man. Now, what really caught me off guard was the second part of the verse. Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. My first thought is that they should have been excited. Their their king had been born. Perhaps disappointed with themselves because they had missed out, they'd they'd missed it, and they shouldn't have. But troubled seemed like a strange response to me. I, I studied two opposing views, and I tend to land with the second one that I'm going to share. I'll share both of them, but the second one's the one that we're going to land with. The first view goes like this. The people were troubled because Herod was troubled. Here's what I mean. Because this ruler had been so wicked that he'd killed his own offspring, it would make total sense to the people that something bad could happen if there were a rival to his throne. If we sat under a wicked ruler and we heard that that ruler was losing his mind over the birth of a superior successor, we might be troubled too, right? Out of concern for what he might do. It actually made me think about North Korea. The leader is obviously unstable, And he has very strict control over those who he is supposed to lead. Think about what might be going on in the mind of the people of North Korea when their leader gets stirred up and troubled. So this is a viable option. It just doesn't seem to fit the context of the passage. I think the second option, that people were troubled along with Herod, not because Herod was troubled and wicked, fits the context better. When the original language uses the word with, it means in cooperation with. The other reason I think this is not a sense of guilt and shame or a sense of fear that Herod was going to do something crazy is the fact that they still never went to look for this king. Even after our next passage reveals that they knew where his birth should have taken place, there's zero sign that any of them went to look for him. I think ultimately they were troubled along with Herod because like Herod, they didn't want this king of kings to take them off their own thrones. I have a question that I want to pose to you, but I want you to think about it in your mind, in your own head. To resist the urge to answer out loud. When you hear someone say, I wish Jesus would just come quickly, what goes through your mind? Do you join in the declaration with them and say, yes, Lord, please, come quickly, come, take us home to be with you? Or do you get nervous? Does your heart say, but there's things that I want to do, things I want to experience? It seems really sad to me that the very people, given the prophecies of the coming King, Messiah, are the very ones who are cooperating in their troubled hearts with Herod, because they're receiving even clearer news that the long-awaited one has come. When I was a kid, I remember thinking like this. When an older person at the church would say, I just wish Jesus would come back already, I'd think to myself, not me. I, I want to get married. I want to be with my future wife. I want to have kids. There's things I still want to do. Could he wait just a little bit? And what this revealed to me, though it was later in life, was that I wanted to be on my own throne. I wanted to experience the things I thought were important instead of seeing and savoring the presence of God more than anything. My fear is that that's still us today. We would be troubled with the wicked king if we knew Jesus had returned and we would have to give up the throne of our lives. You see, as shocked as I was when I read that all Jerusalem was troubled with Herod, I quickly realized we aren't all that different, are we? Many of those who claim that Jesus is their Lord and should be looking forward to his return will likely be troubled at the news that he has come back. Let me help you see this by going one step further. For those claiming Jesus is Lord, are you living in sin? Is there a commandment of God that you have no intention of obeying? Is there a commandment that you refuse to submit yourself to? This is not a reoccurring struggle or a normal sin that is in the life of every believer. None of us are perfect. We all struggle with sin. But it's something that you do daily. It is a lifestyle that you have. One that you know God has declared to be sin, but you continue in it anyways. And even now, your heart is fighting against the very words that I'm sharing. Scripture would say that you are living in sin then. If this is you, then you are on your own throne. And your heart should be troubled at the thought of Christ's return every time we get upset at the thought of God taking us off our imaginary thrones, we are doing what the people of Jerusalem did at the hearing of this news. I just want to plead with you this morning. If this is you, repent. Repent of that sin and trust that God has something better for you. If we confess our sins and turn away from them, he is faithful to forgive us. Don't believe the lie that you've gone too far and that it's too late. I share this with you because it was such a personal joy for me when God knocked me off my own throne and brought me to this very same repentance. So if if this is you today, don't run out right after the service. Don't continue hardening your heart. This may be the very grace of God calling you to repentance and a new life moving forward. You see, unfortunately, many professing Christians tend to live like this. But by God's grace, this doesn't have to be where they stay. So let's continue in our passage. Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. And f- for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Now notice what Herod does. He inquires from those people who should have known and did indeed know about the prophecies concerning the Messiah. He gathers the very people that should be full-on sprinting to Bethlehem to see their Messiah because they would know these things, and unfortunately, they proved that knowledge to be true. But they didn't seem interested in finding their king. This is why I'd argued for the second interpretation of the troubled Jews. Even here they give an answer, but they seem very unconcerned with pursuing the town or the child king. Just imagine how many generations of Jews had longed for that day, and here it is. And the very people that God had shown favor to are the very ones who are troubled instead of overwhelmed with joy. Now this is the theme that Matthew carries throughout his gospel. The theme of the Israelites, who were supposed to be God's own people, rejecting him, while the Gentiles, for example, the Magi, are actually in pursuit of him. John's gospel, the one that we've spent the last two years in, gives a theme that shows that God didn't just come for the Jewish people, but that he is the God of all believers, both Jew and Gentile. Matthew tends to focus more on the rejection of Israel toward their God and the acceptance or faith of the Gentiles. Anyone here ever been betrayed or ignored by the very ones who are supposed to be there for you the most? It's kind of like that. Back to the passage though. There's some cool stuff going on in this prophecy, and I must point it out to you. We read the original prophecy in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, I'm sure that's right, who are <laughs> too little to be among the clans of Judah, From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, just the name of the town where Christ was born, Bethlehem, means bread. So the bread of life, as Jesus calls himself, is born in the town of bread. Our God's pretty amazing, right? Now, a much bigger point to see here is that for those who argue the deity of Christ or his eternal existence, what do they do with this passage? If they deny Christ's deity, then they cannot interpret this text properly. The scribes and Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of the day, said this verse was indeed the prophecy concerning the Messiah. So not only was the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem, But this prophecy proclaims that the one to be born has eternally existed. This is what it means when it says his coming forth was from of old, from ancient of days. You see, this king to be born wasn't beginning his existence at his birth. No, he was coming forth from ancient of days. The king born was God in the flesh. Anyone who says Jesus was not God has not seen these verses clearly. Church, Jesus is God. He has always existed. Jesus' conception in the womb of Mary, leading to his birth that we are celebrating at Christmas, was his incarnation. It was the very point in history when the Ancient of Days took on a human nature and nine months later was born. This is called the hypostatic union. Jesus is not half God, half man. He is rather 100% God and 100% man. To be clear, he's not 200% of something. Rather, he is two 100%. Now, remember when things like this are describing God to us and we have a hard time relating to it, it's very helpful for us to make a new mental category. In our life, what we see and touch and experience, it doesn't give us something tangible to relate this to. So, create in your mind a new mental category and place the truths about God in this category. It's a very helpful practice. Now, how beautiful is the fact that God Himself has revealed in history for us what would take place? And it did, indeed, take place. Christian, your faith should be strengthened with every answered prophecy. It should add weight to your foundation in Christ. These things don't cause us to believe God does that work, but certainly God uses these things in a very gracious way to prove to us that he does and will keep his word. And that's a gracious gift, because realize he's God. He doesn't have to do that, right? But he bolsters our faith with these things. Let's continue in the passage, verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Notice the heart difference of the Magi who clearly believe in the prophesied Messiah versus Herod the king whose throne was now in danger. These men have been inquiring long enough for Herod to gather the scribes and Pharisees and they did not let the utter lack of knowledge of this epic event stop them from searching for their king. Meanwhile, Herod will now pursue this king as well with the same passion Unfortunately, it's one filled with anger and fear in an attempt to destroy the perceived threat to his throne. It seems clear that Herod called the Magi in secret because had the rest of the people heard of Herod's request, they would have warned the Magi of Herod's true intentions. Again, before we get too upset at the deceitfulness of Herod, how does this historical event reflect our hearts now? You see, prior to true faith, This story is ours. We were haters of God. We wanted him dead. We want the throne of our lives so we don't want anyone telling us what to do or how to live. You see, Herod has no faith. He only sees the threat. He's incapable of seeing the beauty of what has happened in this small town of Bethlehem. The magi see it and they pursue it with a desire to worship Jesus because they have been given faith. The actions of Herod should not surprise us. In fact, they were our very own actions prior to Christ stepping in and graciously giving us new life and faith in him. For those of us who have been saved, the actions of the magi here ought to convict us. Are we pursuing God the way they did? Are we asking those around us, Are we searching the scriptures? Do we see the beauty of our Lord's birth and marvel that he entered into creation to become the perfect savior? Here in this passage, we see a wicked king being deceitful and fearful for his throne. And in stark contrast, we see some foreign men who will not stop until they have found the prophesied king to worship him. Our passage continues in verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that had appeared, sorry, the star that they had seen, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The Magi had found out where the town was, and while they were headed that way, they saw and were reassured that this was the right way as the very star that led them all the way to Jerusalem was out once again, leading them to the home of their king. Now notice something really exceptional about this. The star they had followed didn't just rest over the town. Rather, it stopped and it rested or it remained suspended over the very house where the child was. Now, it's clear that they were filled with joy, that the star had reappeared again. The passage says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. When they were in Jerusalem, it was likely that the star was not visible, and this would explain why they were asking the people instead of simply following the star to the child's house. Now, as they head to where the king was born, the star reappears, and it overwhelms them with joy. When you are seeking the treasure of your heart, and the signs that you are coming close get bigger and brighter and clearer, it's that kind of joy. Now the star stopped over the house of the child, showing them exactly where they needed to go, and they were about to lay their eyes on the king that they had been on this great journey to find. How many of you have ever decided to be dedicated to something, and a few weeks in you gave up? You don't have to raise your hand. These guys had searched and followed and believed in this foretold Savior with diligence for quite some time. Can you imagine the joy they had when they see the star again and they know this is it? The scriptures say they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. What a great way to describe how excited they must have been. Is this how we see the Messiah when we study the word of God? Or when we see him answer our prayers? Are we filled with exceeding joy and rejoicing? For some of you who have recently been saved or were saved as an adult, saved as an adult, do you remember this joy? Do you remember the moment you believed that you had a Savior? Do you remember the moment when everything else was meaningless in comparison to your Lord? Growing up in a Christian home and always believing as far back as I can remember makes me feel like I miss this sometimes. But by God's grace, there are times in the Word or in worship that I'm overwhelmed again with what Jesus has done for me and how certain I am of my faith in Him. And I can't help but rejoice with exceeding great joy. I just wanted to pause here shortly and remind you, this King is to be the joy of our hearts. There are certainly times in life where we won't so easily be rejoicing this way. But if you've been missing this joy, then remember what he has done for you. You really don't need to look much further than this to see what it costs Jesus to put on flesh and take on God's wrath in our place on the cross. The second member of the triune God humbled himself to take on a human nature to die in the place of sinners. You see, these magi, they weren't rejoicing with exceedingly great joy without reason. This was the Messiah in the flesh that they had come to worship. And this should have been the attitude of all Jerusalem, but their hardened hearts had kept them from this. When we talk about God and his sovereign hand at work, the magi really give us two different views of this. God sovereignly leads them to Jesus. That's really clear from the very fact that they're following a star, not because it's super bright or really noticeable. Otherwise, why would Herod have had to ask the Magi when it appeared? No, there was something very different about this star, and it wasn't a super obvious difference. If it had been, Herod would have seen it, or at least those in his council would have. And they would have not needed the information from the Magi about when it appeared. They were following it for a unique reason. It was God sovereignly moving a star in a way that stars don't move. And intentionally leading these men to Jesus. Now this is an up-close view of God sovereignly working. Leading these men to their Savior. But how about a, a, a bigger, further away view? What I mean is, How do these men even know to be looking for the star? How do they hear about the king of Jews' birth? For that, we need to look back to the book of Daniel, where we really get a bigger scope and view of God's sovereignty and how the wise men were a part of it. So let me give you a brief overview and a synopsis of Daniel so you can see the connection that I'm making here. Daniel, along with three other descendants of David, we would know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were taken as captives to Babylon after Babylon's initial raid on Jerusalem under King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, God only allowed this to happen because the kings, the kings over the Israelites would not honor and obey God. So God gave them over to their enemies. This all took place about 605 BC. Now, we see in the book of Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, made Daniel a ruler Over the wise men of Babylon. This is found in Daniel chapter 2, verse 48. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. So God allows Jerusalem to get attacked and defeated. And Daniel, one of the descendants of David, gets taken along with three other descendants of David and many other Israelites. Then in captivity under the king of Babylon, Daniel is recognized for his wisdom and the king places him in charge of the wise men in the region. Can you see how even this far back, God has sovereignly orchestrated these events that would lead these wise men, these magi, to come And worship their king. Daniel was the very one who was given a prophecy about when the king of the Jews would be born. And to make a long story short, he surely would have taught those wise men that he was placed over about this future king. Now, fast forward 600 years and some change, give or take 10, whatever. And the wise men who knew about the events happening and the prophecies knew these things. Because God had allowed his own people to be taken as prisoners for their rebellion 600 years prior. And as God would have it, that Daniel himself would be placed in charge of these wise men, and Daniel himself would be given the dreams that revealed the very prophecies concerning this coming king. Well, these wise men, or magi, would have known that the time of the prophecy found in Daniel chapter 9 was coming due. They most certainly would have been looking for something to happen. They would have been paying attention to these things. Isn't this amazing? I I know I'm nerding out a bit on this passage, but it was really exciting for me when I began to see what, what God was doing throughout history here. But this isn't new. God has been doing his redemptive work ever since Genesis 3 when he promised that a descendant of Eve would be our savior. It really is so neat for us to get to see these things play out in time. God is always working things out to the ends which he has decided, and even sinful men are used as a part of his eternal plans. We see more of God's work in the passage through a particular king and his sin. So we know God clearly, supernaturally moves this star... He most likely caused it to rise in the west. Everything else we see rises in the east and sets in the west. But if his star had rose in the west, the Magi would have seen there was something different. The Magi who were from the east followed the star west. So it would make sense that this is the way God worked it out. Now God had allowed his star to lead the Magi to Jerusalem, where Herod was, but then he stopped it from being visible. He did this so that the Magi would ask around and Herod would receive the news that a king had been born. We know God did this intentionally because he uses Herod's sinful heart to fulfill the prophecy of Jesus moving to Egypt. We're going to skip a few passages in our our main section here to see what I'm talking about. Verse 13, now when they, that's the, the Magi, I keep saying, you see how hard it is? I keep saying Magi still, it's so difficult. When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. See how the details reveal the sovereign hand and plan of God. He led the Magi to Jerusalem and stopped leading them long enough for Herod to catch wind of what had happened Then after Herod had met with the Magi, the star that had led them previously reappears and it leads them to Jesus' home where they find him and worship him. Then God sends a messenger to Joseph in a dream to warn him about Herod and tells Joseph to go to Egypt. doesn't just say flee. He says, go here. God warned Joseph in this dream because he knew what Herod was going to do. In fact... He made sure that Herod would receive the very information that would stir up Herod's sinful heart and cause him to be troubled and act out. God did all of this to fulfill the prophecy from Hosea. Hosea 11.1 When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. I hope you guys see God's sovereign hand here. So let's look back at the passages we skipped, and we'll see how the Magi worshipped their king. Verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. When the star disappeared over Jerusalem, the Magi could have stopped and said, we made it to the king's country. When the star stopped over the house of Jesus, they could have worshipped outside and said, he's in there, the king's in there. But they would not stop until they could see the king, their king, and worship him. They fell down and worshipped Jesus would have likely been around the age of one. The scriptures don't give us a clear age, but we can, with observation, make a rough estimate of somewhere between the age of one and almost two. I imagine Herod would have been smart enough to give himself some room to error when he said all the children two and under must be killed. So I think it's safe to say that Jesus' age was somewhere around one. So picture this grown men falling on their face in front of a one-year-old child and worshiping the only reason these men would have had any clue about this event was because God's sovereign hand throughout history these magi never gave up they didn't stop but they wouldn't even be on the scene if it wasn't for God's work in history See God ensuring that Jesus will save his people. All who belong to God will be saved. And the Magi are a beautiful picture of God's sovereign work to make sure that this happens. It says they opened their treasures and they offered gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These were precious metals and herbs and incense. And there have been plenty of people who tried to make each of these gifts have some peculiar meaning. But historically, it was very common for rulers and nations who wanted to show respect to a greater nation or wanted their protection. Really, it was just the way of recognizing the other nation as superior to give gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The scripture does not give us a reason, so all of our thoughts added to this are just speculation. But it would make sense for these magi who belong to another nation to come and recognize the King Jesus himself as superior. Now, whether that was the point or not, what we do know, and it's obvious by their pursuit, worship, and offering, is that God had given them faith in this Messiah. They came to honor their Lord and Savior, and that's amazing. See the joy of those who were looking forward to a Savior fulfilled in their worship of a child as the King of the Jews, the very one prophesied of by Daniel in all of the Old Testament. And just like God had guided their way to Jesus, he also guides them back home, warning them in a dream to go another route. The passage in Matthew goes on to show Herod carrying out his wicked plans in an attempt to keep this throne that he purchased. What simply blows my mind is that Herod, in his sin and wickedness, does this wretched thing fearing a child. I I can't fathom a wickedness so deep that you send soldiers to kill every child in the region from the age of two and under. But the scriptures reveal that this was done to fulfill the prophecy once again. Verse 16 Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region, who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, She refused to be comforted because they are no more. You see, what sinful men have meant for evil throughout history, God has used for good. Matthew is loading his letter with proof of fulfilled prophecy so that the very ones who would have had these prophecies might believe that Jesus was truly the Messiah. Just like Joseph told the very brothers who sold him into slavery that what they had meant for evil, God had meant for good, we see the evil actions of sinful men and yet the sovereign hand of God working through these things to bring about the one and only Savior. Do you guys see God's sovereign hand here? If you're wondering why I'm driving this point home, let me shed some light on that. If you remember last week... uh, I had said that there was a verse in Matthew that was probably one of my favorites in all of Scripture. We're going to look at it again. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Church, if God is not sovereign, how could his word declare this with such clarity, with such certainty? Jesus will save his people from their sins. The verse doesn't say Jesus might save his people. The verse doesn't say Jesus will make salvation a possibility. No, it says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will, he will save his people from their sins. God declares this in his word because no human will and no sin of man can prevent the king of kings from doing everything that God had sent him to do and God's hand will not be thwarted. Church, this should bring you such comfort and joy. Our God has not abandoned us in this world, a world that seems to be falling apart all around us. He will accomplish what he has set out to do. If the God who sovereignly brought Daniel out of Jerusalem and into Babylon and put him in charge of the wise men there, then gave Daniel dreams about the coming king of the Jews and approximately when he would come, so that Daniel would pass this information on to those wise men, the same wise men who God sovereignly protects and ensures that they would continue teaching this truth down from generation to generation for 600 years And if the same God caused a special star to rise and lead these men to Jerusalem and caused that star to disappear so that a wicked king could hear about this, and then he caused that star to reappear again and lead the wise men to the very home where Jesus lived. If that same God visited these men and Joseph in a dream to make sure they went specific ways to fulfill prophecies. Church, God even ensured that this poor family would have enough money to travel to Egypt by the very gold that was given to them by the wise men prior to their trip. If this God can do all of these things, then what are you so anxious about? What is so big in your life that God cannot overcome it? The answer is nothing. God can and he will continue his work today and every day to come when it seems like the whole world is raging against him. Jesus will, not might, not maybe, he will save his people from their sins. If you are his, nothing will stop him. That's what we see Paul speaking about in Romans chapter 8. Another one of my favorite sections of scripture. Romans 8.31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. This is why God's sovereignty matters. It matters for our hearts when we doubt. It matters for our ministry when we go out and share the gospel and it seems like no one is listening. It matters when an entire region of kids, two and under, get killed by soldiers because we know that God is at work. God will use us and every circumstance that life brings to accomplish His work. And He will save His people. This should encourage and strengthen us at every turn. It should be the foundation of our lives. It mattered at the cross. Acts 2.22 Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You see, God's sovereign hand is what put Jesus on the cross. Sinful men kill Jesus, but God had ordained that this would happen in order that Matthew 1, I think it's 19 or 121, in order that that would come true. Jesus will save his people from their sins. Every aspect of Jesus' birth from those present to those who would come is a part of God's sovereign plan to reconcile a people through the life, death, and resurrection of his only begotten son. If you have not placed your faith in Christ, what are you missing? I plead with you today, don't just leave. Grab one of the leaders, one of the elders will be up front waiting after our next song, and talk to us. Let us answer your questions. Let us pray for you. Repent of your sins and trust in the child king who would grow into a man climb upon a cross and die for the sins of his people and leave here a saved son or daughter of the one true God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son. As we celebrate Christmas and we think about Jesus putting on flesh so that he could bleed on a cross and we look throughout history and we see your sovereign hand guiding each step of the way, I pray that it would fill us with worship and praise for you. I pray that your spirit would be moving on hearts and where there is hardness, where we are stuck in habitual sin, unrepentantness, God, break down those walls. Cause us to repent, give us faith. Bolster the faith of the saints, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.